Chapter Two of Discourses on the First Decade of Titus Livius, Book One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Discourses on the First Decade of Titus Livius, Book One, by Niccolo Machiavelli, translated by Ninian Hill Thompson. Chapter Two. Chapter 2. Of the various kinds of government, and to which of them the Roman commonwealth belonged. I forego all discussion concerning those cities which at the outset have been dependent upon others, and shall speak only of those which from their earliest beginnings have stood entirely clear of all foreign control, being governed from the first as pleased themselves, whether as republics or as princedoms. These, as they have had different origins, so likewise have had different laws and institutions. For to some, at their very first commencement, or not long after, laws have been given by a single legislator, and all at one time, like those given by Lycurgus to the Spartans while to others they have been given at different times as need arose or accident determined, as in the case of Rome. That republic indeed may be called happy, whose lot has been to have a founder so prudent as to provide for its laws under which it can continue to live securely without need to amend them. As we find Sparta preserving hers, for eight hundred years, without deterioration and without any dangerous disturbance. On the other hand, some measure of unhappiness attaches to the state which, not having yielded itself, once for all, into the hands of a single wise legislator, is obliged to recast its institutions for itself, and of such states, by far the most unhappy is that which is furthest removed from a sound system of government, by which I mean that its institutions lie wholly outside the path which might lead it to a true and perfect end. For it is scarcely possible that a state in this position can ever, by any chance, set itself to rights, whereas another whose institutions are imperfect, if it have made a good beginning, and as such as admits of its amendment, may in the course of events arrive at perfection. It is certain, however, that such states can never be reformed without great risk, for as a rule, men will accept no new law altering the institutions of their state unless the necessity for such a change be demonstrated. And since this necessity cannot arise without danger, the state may easily be overthrown before the new order of things is established. In proof whereof, we may instance the Republic of Florence, which was reformed in the year 1502, in consequence of the affair of Arezzo, but was ruined in 1512, in consequence of the affair of Prato. Desiring, therefore, to discuss the nature of government of Rome, and to ascertain the accidental 
circumstances which brought it to its perfection, I say, as has been said before by many who have written of governments, that of these there are three forms known by the names monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy, and that those who give its institutions to a state have recourse to one or other of these three, according as it suits their purpose. Other, and as many have thought, wiser teachers will have it that there are altogether six forms of government, three of them utterly bad, the other three good in themselves, but so readily corrupted that they too are apt to become hurtful. The good are the three above named, the bad, three others dependent upon these, and each so like that to which it is related that it is easy to pass imperceptibly from the one to the other, for a monarchy readily becomes a tyranny, an aristocracy, an oligarchy, while a democracy tends to degenerate into anarchy. So that if the founder of a state should establish any one of these three forms of government, he establishes it for a short time only, since no precaution he may take can prevent it from sliding into its contrary by reason of the close resemblance which, in this case, the virtue bears to the vice. These diversities in the form of government spring up among men by chance. For in the beginning of the world, its inhabitants, being few in number, for a time lived scattered after the fashion of beasts. But afterward, as they increased and multiplied, gathered themselves into societies, and the better to protect themselves, began to seek who among them was the strongest and of the highest courage, to whom, making him their head, they tendered obedience. Next arose the knowledge of such things as are honorable and good, as opposed to those which are bad and shameful. For observing that when a man wronged his benefactor, hatred was universally felt for the one and sympathy for the other, and that the ungrateful were blamed while those who showed gratitude were honored, and reflecting that the wrongs they saw done to others might be done to themselves. To escape these, they resorted to making laws and fixing punishments against any who should transgress them, and in this way grew the recognition of justice. Whence it came that afterwards, in choosing their rulers, men no longer looked about for the strongest, but for him who was the most prudent and the most just. But presently, when sovereignty grew to be hereditary and no longer elective, hereditary sovereigns began to degenerate from their ancestors, and, quitting worthy causes, took up the notion that princes had nothing to do but to surpass the rest of the world in sumptuous display and wantonness, and whatever else ministers to pleasure, so that the prince coming to be hated, and therefore to feel fear, and passing from fear to infliction of injuries, a tyranny soon sprang up. Forthwith, there began movements to overthrow the prince, 
and plots and conspiracies against him undertaken not by those who were weak or afraid for themselves, but by such as being conspicuous for their birth, courage, wealth, and station, could not tolerate the shameful life of the tyrant. The multitude, following the lead of these powerful men, took up arms against the prince, and he being got rid of, obeyed these others as their liberators, who on their part, holding in hatred the name of the sole ruler, formed themselves into a government, and at first, while the recollection of past tyranny was still fresh, observed the laws they themselves made, and, postponing personal advantage to the common welfare, administered affairs both publicly and privately with the utmost diligence and zeal. But this government passing, afterward, to their descendants who, never having been taught in the school of adversity, knew nothing of the vicissitudes of fortune, these not choosing to rest content with mere civil equality, but abandoning themselves to avarice, ambition, and lust, converted, without respect to civil rights, what had been a government of the best to a government of the few, and so very soon met with the same fate as the tyrant. For the multitude, loathing its rulers, lent itself to any who ventured in whatever way to attack them, when some one man speedily arose who with the aid of the people overthrew them. But the recollection of the tyrant and the wrongs suffered at his hands being still fresh in the minds of the people, who therefore felt no desire to restore the monarchy, they had recourse to a popular government, which they established on such a footing that neither king nor nobles had any place in it. And because all governments inspire respect at the first, this government also lasted for a while, but not for long, and seldom after the generation which brought it into existence had died out. For suddenly, liberty passed into license wherein neither private worth nor public authority was respected, but everyone living as he liked, a thousand wrongs were done daily. Whereupon, whether driven by necessity or by the suggestion of some wiser man among them, and to escape anarchy, the people reverted to a monarchy, from which, step by step, in the manner and for the causes already assigned, they came round once more to license. For this is the circle revolving, within which all states are and have been governed. Although in the same state, the same forms of government rarely repeat themselves, because hardly any state can have such vitality as to pass through such a cycle more than once, and still together. For it may be expected that in some sea of disaster, when a state must always be wanting prudent counsels and in strength, it will become subject to some neighboring and better governed state, though assuming this not to happen, it might well pass for an indefinite period from one of these forms of government to another. I say then that all these six forms of government are pernicious. The three good kinds, from their brief duration, and the three bad from their inherent badness. Wise legislators, therefore, 
knowing these defects and avoiding each of these forms in its simplicity, have made choice of a form which shares the qualities of all the first three, and which they judge to be more stable and lasting than any of these separately. For where we have a monarchy, an aristocracy, and a democracy existing together in the same city, each of the three serves as a check upon the other. Among those who have earned special praise by devising the constitution of this nature was Lycurgus, who so framed the laws of Sparta as to assign their proper functions to kings, nobles, and commons, and in this way established a government which, to his great glory and to the peace and tranquility of his country, lasted for more than eight hundred years. The contrary, however, happened in the case of Solon, who by the turn he gave to the institutions of Athens, created there a purely democratic government of such brief duration that he himself lived to witness the beginning of the despotism of Pisistratus. And although, forty years later, the heirs of Pisistratus were driven out, and Athens recovered her freedom, nevertheless, because she reverted to the same form of government as had been established by Solon, she could maintain it for only a hundred years more. For though to preserve it, many ordinances were passed for repressing the ambition of the great and the turbulence of the people, against which Solon had not provided, still since neither the monarchic nor the aristocratic element was given a place in her constitution, Athens, as compared with Sparta, had but a short life. But let us now turn to Rome, which city, although she had no Lycurgus to give her from the first such a constitution as would preserve her long in freedom, through a series of accidents caused by the contests between the commons and the senate, obtained by chance what the foresight of her founders failed to provide, so that fortune, if she bestowed not her first favors on Rome, bestowed her second, because although the original institutions of this city were defective, still they lay not outside the true path which could bring them to perfection. For Romulus and the other kings made many and good laws, and such as were not incompatible with freedom. But because they sought to found a kingdom and not a commonwealth, when the city became free, many things were found wanting, which in the interest of liberty it was necessary to supply, since these kings had not supplied them. And although the kings of Rome lost their sovereignty in the manner and for the causes mentioned above, nevertheless those who drove them out by at once creating two consuls to take their place, preserved in Rome the regal authority, while banishing from it the regal throne, so that as both senate and consuls were included in that republic, it in fact possessed two of the elements above enumerated, to wit, the monarchic and the aristocratic. It then only remained to assign its place to the popular element and the Roman nobles, growing insolent from causes which shall be noted hereafter, the commons against them, when, not to lose the whole of their power, they were forced to concede a share to the people, while, with the share which remained, 
the senate and consuls retained so much authority that they still held their own place in the republic in this way the tribunes of the people came to be created after whose creation the stability of the state was much augmented since each of the three forms of government had now its due influence allowed it and such was the good fortune of rome that although her government passed from the kings to the nobles and from these to the people by the steps and for the reasons noted above still the entire authority of the kingly element was not sacrificed to strengthen the authority of the nobles nor were the nobles divested of their authority to bestow it on the commons but three blending together made up a perfect state which perfection as shall be fully shown in the next two chapters was reached through the dissensions of the commons and the senate end of chapter two